All right, welcome and thank you for joining us for another episode of the Jane Irrigation Training Series. I'm Richard Rastusha, uh, your host today. And uh, today we're gonna be talking about a subject that I, I think is um, fascinating to a lot of people. And I'll tell you why I say this. Uh, oftentimes when uh, I talk about irrigation or you know, maybe I'm at uh, somebody's house for a dinner party or a cocktail party, if I start talking about irrigation, you, know, you get that glazed over look uh, pretty quickly. But anytime you start talking about the cannabis business today, you get a lot of interested people. You know, So uh, I've been working in this area for about six or seven years now. And the other thing I've noticed is that general interest has turned into a, a big interest to a lot of people coming into the uh, the growing market, right? So it's attractive to people, the money seems to be good, and we're actually getting a pretty big glut of people entering it. And as a result, uh, I think uh, supplies have been high and prices have been down. So then I think about what can make a big difference to a grower right now in this arena, and that is the irrigation and fertigation and what nutrients are going to the plants will make a big difference in yield as well as quality. And so when I think about the growers out there today and how they can be more competitive, I think, man, it is time to talk about irrigation and uh, irrigation for cannabis uh, specifically. And that's why I uh, brought uh, called Michael and I said, Michael, we need to talk about this today. Michael is our irrigation solution manager for cannabis and hemp. And uh, he's got a lot of experience in this uh, arena. That's for sure. He's worked on a lot of big grows across the U.S., over the past few years, Michael's been a landscape contractor. He knows a ton about irrigation and uh, has a bunch of marketing skills to go along with it as well. So we're really fortunate to have uh, Michael with us today to take us through the uh, components of a cannabis uh, irrigation system. Michael, welcome. Thanks for joining us today. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. Yeah, you, you made a great point when, uh, you know, when supplies are... Uh in such high demand, uh, if you don't know the supplies, you know, how these components work, then it's harder to find an alternative for it. And so, um, you know, with, with things the way they have been, with the scarcities over the last couple of years, I really wanted to, uh, to put together a deck that showed, you know, not only the components we should be using, but kind of explain how they work. That way, if you can't find, you know, maybe your first option, you know, ultimately, you know, you can ask informed questions to find uh, the solution that maybe is in stock, you know, and we're, we're fortunate in chain that we have so many different SKUs and then we have multiple options for, uh, for the same application. And so uh, knowing how they work is going to be crucial. Yeah, and uh, two things come to mind too. Um, when I talk to people in the cannabis business that talk about irrigation and water, man, they are interested, they are educated and they want to get better. And I really appreciate that. It wasn't maybe three years ago that I was reading in uh, Mother Earth News about a, a outdoor grow that was hand watering everything. And the person was saying, yeah, sometimes I get distracted. Sometimes a plant gets a double dose of water and sometimes it gets none. And uh, I think how far we've come in the past uh, few years with uh, irrigation for cannabis. Now, Michael, how, how busy is it out there? How, uh, how um, active is this uh, industry right now? I mean, I think the irrigation and the contracting side of it is is enormously busy. I mean, the majority of uh, the work that I'm doing right now, it's a lot of specification. I think now that, you know, components and uh, products are are becoming more readily available, I think, um, you know, people are really focusing on either retrofitting their existing systems to, you know, add that consistency for, for bigger, more consistent yields and canopy growth. Um, I also think on the specifier side, um, since it, everyone feels a little more safer investing in it because of the years past where, um, 
you know, they've seen the success stories. So I think uh, where there might've been some, you know, intrepidation five years ago, uh, these builds that we're seeing now are, are, are massive, you know, three-story um, layers inside warehouses. Uh, and, and it's just, it's come a long way. And so it's a more refined process on the spec side um, that is incredibly busy. I know there's some um, saturation on uh, the distribution side, getting rid of the product, um, you know, anywhere from between wholesale, retail, uh, the price being driven down because of um, so much uh, product, you know, um, in stock. But on our side, on the manufacturing side, on the contracting side, uh, we're busier, busier than ever trying to get these, you know, that, that product will go by the wayside here very soon. And we're going um, to need to backfill it. And so you can already tell the market's pushing that direction. Yeah, interesting. So uh, today we're going to learn about the uh, components of a cannabis system. And um, basically, this is uh, uh, for somebody uh, just getting into it, right? This is more of a starting place. We're not going to cover uh, all the details. Is that right? Yeah. Um, you know, I think you know, I typically we've talked in the past from a from a design and a troubleshooting standpoint. I've always been, you know, even on the, the irrigation contracting side, you always want to start at your source of water and work your way all the way to the emission device. And so uh, when I put these presentations together, I always want to make sure that, you know, the growers that are watching, they do the exact same thing. So as you're looking at the different components involved and making the right uh, selections or making the right decisions on what you should have, um, you should always start at your source of water, which is a, either a well, a reservoir, a tank, whatever it is. You start from there and you work your way towards the end. And so what we're going to talk about today is we're going to go over some of the more important components that, you know, get us delivering water from our source to our plants consistently and as clean as possible, minimal maintenance, um, you know, minimal replacement and stuff like that. But we're also gonna have, a, I have a couple slides in here for future reference. Uh, so our viewers can always go back and, um, and look at maybe some of the more com complex, uh, you know, aspects of it because you do need to know that when it comes to design, um, you know, uh, how, how many you can put, a, how many heads you can put on a zone and stuff like that. Okay, great. That'll be really helpful. You know, um, it's uh, it's amazing what just a little attention to this area will do as far as results. Exactly. And so what we did is when we came up with the uh, the idea for this topic, you know, this this comes from discussions that I'm having with growers every day. Um, a lot of the spec side, um, a lot of new growers that are trying to automate their systems. They want to know how these components work together and what the role of each of them is, um, you know, in tandem to make sure that you know that you're not wasting money on these things and that you're also not overcomplicating things with labor being such a such a hard thing to find now the last thing you want to do is uh, put a bunch of components in a system that your new labor force isn't going to be able to operate and so you want things to be as simple as possible consistent as possible and as maintenance free as possible and so we'll go over a couple items today and uh, exactly why you know these are the best solutions for that hey great that's uh, that's exciting so on here um I, you see the topics that I'd like to discuss, and these are always the most important uh, filtration, automation, um, you know, how are we delivering the water, um, you know, and then how these components all work together. And so uh, the combination of knowing how these items work and why they do what they do. Uh, and then in the end, we'll recap with how all of them work together uh, in parallel to make sure, you know, that your, your systems is as maintenance free as possible. Uh, starting with obviously to, to me one of the most important things we were talking about your roses uh, you know when you make compost tea when you're mixing something uh, at a batch level in a reservoir uh, this is where clogging becomes a, a huge issue and there's been a lot of animosity towards drip in the past because of clogging and the main reason for that is because we're just not filtering our, our water properly 
Now, just because you're adding compost teas or nutrients to a system doesn't mean you also can't filter. There's a right filter for every job. So depending on how uh, you know thick your your tea is, and uh, you know that that's going to be dependent on a filter. Now, you can put a filter on any system, but the main reason you want to select the right filter for a system is because you want to not try to overdo your maintenance. Any filter is going to need cleaning. We have a filter that is self-flushing, um, but it still ultimately is going to need some cleaning. And you don't want to have to be cleaning your filter every three days, every four days. Um, you know, and so to to eliminate that, you're going to make the right decision up front. And that's why filters come with um, a plethora of different mesh options. And these are the screens that go inside. On this particular slide, there's a couple of things I want to point out. Um, these are Y filters. These are the most popular filters uh, for most irrigation. Uh, we make plastic ones, glass filled nylon, steel ones. Um, so there, you have every option from every size to half inch up to, I think we make 12 or 14 inch filters. So there should never be a problem with flow being a restriction on uh, filtration. So you, you can always find a filter for your, for your project. And you know you can always switch out the screen inside. The screens are not super expensive. Where maybe you do see it getting clogged more often than it should. You're you're you know spending too much maintenance time on it. You can switch that out. And so usually with our growers, when I'm working with them, I'll you know give them a 120 mesh screen, which is pretty uh, in the middle. And if it's overly clogging, then we'll go to a you know a higher mesh or a lower mesh, depending on uh, how much maintenance they're putting in into it. So you don't want to be spending too much time cleaning your filter out, but at the same time. You don't want to get clogged emitters because all of a sudden uh, now you're going to be uh, compromising plant growth. That's when it becomes super restrictive. So we want to make sure you're always filtering on the primary and secondary side. And what that means is when you're coming out of your either your pump or your reservoir, we want to be filtering there, which is at a high level, typically, you know, two to three, four inches, a larger flow. And then also at each individual zone valve. And we'll talk about valves here in a second. But this is essentially how we distribute our water. Um, you know, based on our hydraulics. Uh, the, the metaphor I always use is if you turn on every, you know, faucet and shower in your house, very quickly the pressure in each one goes down. So what we do is um, just like a, a shower turns on and, a, you know, you don't run three showers at the same time. It's very similar to zone valves in irrigation. And we want to make sure that we zone our valves out properly. And then we're also filtering each valve properly. That way, not only are we automating, but we're also filtering our water um, and once again, low maintenance, consistent canopy, peak yield, which is exactly what we're aiming for. The other two aspects on here below those two filters is a flush valve, which we're going to talk about in a second, because when we trap all that debris, that debris still doesn't, unless you're flushing every single time out the bottom of your filter, which nobody is doing, um, that debris does make it back into the line. Well, we make a great component here, and it goes at the very end of your zone. And it's going to flush the debris out every time you run your system automatically. And it's a very, it's not an expensive device. Um, and it, it moves air and debris out of the end of the zone. And it keeps your system clean. It keeps your emitters um, working consistently, which is exact, exactly what we're looking for. Uh, then the last diagram, it shows, um, I get this question a lot is, you know, what is going on inside this Y filter? And this is a great illustration showing how the water goes in how the spin clean filter works as um, a natural it, flushing you know, com component or device where it's gonna clean the inside of that filter every time the system runs. And you know, that's something that not a lot of manufacturers, if any, offer it. So that's why you know, we, we really like our spin clean filter and why it's such a success in the market. Michael, you have any idea why filtration is such a mystery to a lot of people? I mean, oftentimes uh, somebody will call me for troubleshooting and 
Um, I'll have some clogged emitters or something will be going on. And my first question always is, you know, uh, well, when was the last time you cleaned your filter? And, you know, they're not joking when they come back and they say, what filter? I, I think it goes back to that, you know, I think a little bit of it is a mystery to, you know, um, it, it, it's nerve wracking to open something up that's under pressure. I've learned that as well. So uh, with a new labor force or with people that don't really know uh, the components of an irrigation system, there's a little bit of nervousness where if I unscrew this, is it going to break a seal that shouldn't be broken? Um, you know, and so I think that it's a little bit of just uh, not knowing much about the component. But I think the bigger one is... Um, the, the most annoying part of filters is they're, they get clogged like because it just creates a, a new maintenance point. Um, I, I think most growers are under the impression that if they just mix their tea well enough that these emitters should be able to, to move this debris through it. Um, but that's just simply not the case. When you're dealing with such a small level of water coming out of these small orifices, um, it's just it's detrimental that you're, you're filtering your water, even if you are introducing nutrients to it, um, or you're going to be dealing with clogging all the time. And I'd much rather go to a couple points of maintenance in the system, like on the primary side or on the zone side, than having to go to every single emitter and blow it out and tap it out and replace the quarter inch tube and things like this. So, I mean, you know, it goes back to working smarter, not harder. Uh, while it may require some maintenance, it's way better than having to maintenance every single emitter and every single quarter inch tube uh, at, at each plant. So, and then uh, we, we've got a question coming in about these uh, flush valves or the, the filters uh, that are uh, uh, near the valve. Um, do you take the end piece off or on the, on the one illustration, it looks like there's a ball valve there. Do you open those up and then run the system and let it blow out or do you just let it drain out? Yeah, so um, yeah, you can let it blow out. A lot of people, um, you know, the site I was at yesterday was a big uh, big nursery in Southern California and you kind of just crack it to, um, sometimes we were doing it just to see the water, they had iron content and minerals in their water. And so you would just kind of crack it to see the idea of the ball valve is you could you could put a hose on that and displace the water. If these filters are inside, you don't want to take that cap off and just let you know the system run and just go all over the floor. We're we're indoors most of the time when we're growing cannabis. So the idea is that's a connection point. So you could put a hose on that ball valve and run it outside, run it into a five-gallon bucket, yeah, and then flush the system, get some of that debris out. But that takes manual of flushing. That's why we would like that little red device in the bottom left that takes that out of it. That's going to be, it's going to automatically flush it, which we're going to, I actually have a video of that showing in a second. So it gives you a couple different points of connection to a, to flush one manual, one automatic. Yeah. All right, cool. And then uh, I think you're going to get into this in a minute, but we have another question about um, uh, mesh screens and what the mesh should be. Now look at that. There we go. So yeah, um, I the, the, I think the blue here is typically a 120. 120 in, on the landscape side is what I kind of grew up using, uh, 100, 120. Uh, you know, if you're pulling out of uh, like a limestone aquifer like we do here in the South, uh, you know, you're going to get shale, you're going to get larger pieces of debris. So you don't need a super fine mesh. Um, you, need, you don't want to have to be constantly servicing it. Also, when you're using overhead irrigation pop-ups or rotors, not necessarily like misters or um, very small orifice sprinklers like in a, in a greenhouse, um, a lot of that debris is going to make it through or it's going to have, you're going to have a separate screen at the, the emission device. So I always like, I start at 100, 120, and then depending on um, how often it's getting clogged, because water is going to make it through it, it's just going to get clogged way more often, or it's get, not necessarily clogged, but it's just going to fill up, you're going to need to maintenance it more often. So, you know, it, it's always, I always start in the middle and then work my way either way. 
the other one is the first question you got to ask is like you said with your roses if you're introducing a, like an organic liquid there's not a lot of debris in it but if you have huge reservoir tanks outside or even inside and they're not being mixed properly you're, you know you're, you're pulling from a 2500 gallon tank um you know throughout a couple of weeks a lot of that sediment sits at the bottom well when it does, when, when it finally makes it into the line, you're gonna get, your filter is gonna get um, you know, overrun with debris. So it really just depends on how much you're mixing your reservoir or your quality of water um, that, you know, which mesh or micron you're gonna use with your filter. And then of course, to overcomplicate things as manufacturers, we reference a mesh uh, for our screens, um, but a lot of the country uses, or a lot of the world uses the micron, which is, um, you know, more of a, a finite uh, measurement of, you know, the size of the holes. And it's, and it kind of works backwards where you go to a lower mesh, it's a higher micron. Um, but mesh is typically how we specify our filters. And like I said, I would start at 100, 120, which is in the middle. And you could always go up to 400 if you really wanted to, or you could go down to, uh, I think 20 is one of our lower meshes. So again, it's just, um, so if I understand you correctly, it's um, uh, put the screens in, kind of see what's happening and you can match the, because you can always pull a screen out and put a different mesh size in. I don't have to buy a whole new filter. Exactly. And, and, and they're, they're relatively inexpensive. And so it's very hard to, to predict all the different variables that are going to come into play as far as, uh, you know, what you're introducing into your system. Um, I, I'm of course going to ask the very basic questions. Like I just said, how big is your reservoir? Is it outside or inside? If it's outside, it's seeing UV. So it's going to clump up a little more. You know, are you are you mixing it? Are you mixing it manually? Are you mixing it automatically? Um, you know, all these little things come into play uh, when you make that decision. But typically, what we'll do is we'll sample out a 100 or a 120. We'll let you try it out, and if it's you're not having to maintenance it any more than once every two or three weeks, then you're good. Uh, if you're having to touch it every two or three days or every few cycles, uh, then we probably want to go with the bigger mesh. And then also, that troubleshooting wise, that points us back to you know, we've got, we've got problems with, um, with our mixture. And so sometimes, you know, the, what you're having to do with the filter is a reflection of, uh, of an issue that we have upstream that we want to focus on. Yeah. Great point. Right. Uh, it, yeah. a lot, a lot, uh, has to do with what you're putting in there. Yeah. When I started asking why they're maintaining their filter, they, most growers, um, don't know where I'm going with it. And that's essentially where I'm going as well. Your reservoir is outside, you're growing inside, you have clear tanks, you know, or your tanks are too big or you're not mixing them properly. It's usually, um, it's usually a variable that, that adds to that problem. Um, this is actually the automatic valve. So this is pretty simple how this works. So as the system comes on, uh, you know, the, this is going to go at the end of your line. Uh, like just like this is in a tray. Some people put them in five gallon buckets, but uh, you know, at the end, you, you want to put this at the end. So you're filtering coming out of the zone valve and then any debris that goes in the line before it even makes it into the emission devices is getting pushed out of these, these um, automatic flush valves. And this is going to show you how it works. So it seals right back up on its own. And you know the, the cool thing about these ones that we have is you can flip the diaphragm in a, from low to high flow. So if it's taking longer than that to, to close, you can flip the diaphragm over and the grooves in the diaphragm will allow it to close faster. So you're still displacing the water and the debris, but you're not you know, having so much water that you're gonna have to deal with um, because obviously slip and fall, stuff like that. But uh, you know we use these in landscaping a lot. This eliminates that whistling you hear in emitters or in uh, inline emitter line all the time because it's pushing the air out as well. Uh, but it's also moving any chunks of debris out. Um, and you don't have to go and open the, the ball valve on the filter like we, we talked about earlier. 
I was going to show that one more time. Yeah, and they should really be on the end of every line, right? So that you get this yeah. repeated every time the valve opens and closes, it flushes. That's right. Yeah. So at the end of every table, you know, if you have a 40 foot table or a 60 foot table, um, this is going to go at the end. And this is regardless of, uh, you know, we're going to go into emission types here in a second, but this is regardless of emission types. Anytime we're using any drip emission devices, we're dealing with very small amounts of water at a very high pressure or a decent pressure considering the, the size of the tubing. So you definitely want to make sure that you're putting something like this on. And I understand putting a ball valve on the end and having your buddy go over there and turn it when the system's running is an option. Um, but I don't know why you'd want to do that when you can pay $5 and put one of these on it and never have to worry about it. So, <laughs> uh, that being said, so how we automate each table, you know, or each room, uh, depending on, depending on our hydraulics is these are the valves, uh, valve options we have. We all know what a ball valve is. It's just a simple ball inside there. We're turning it, opening and closing it. It does restrict some flow. It will build up a little bit of pressure, but that's not, that's not what they're designed for. They're designed for shutoffs for maintenance. So you wanna put this in front of a valve or a filter so you can shut it off to perform maintenance on a component. These should not be used to like literally let water into a, a zone or a lateral to feed, uh, to feed plants. Um, it, they're not gonna last a long time if that's what they're for. Uh, but typically when I've installed ball valves, I put them on the front side of my valves. That way, if I ever do need to work on my valve, I can turn it off with having, without having to shut down the system. So that's why I, that's when I use ball valves. I don't use them um, for uh, anything that should be automated. Everything should essentially be automated. None of these components cost <clears throat> a substantial amount of money unless you're buying obviously hundreds of them. Uh, and automation and reduction of labor is where we get, you know, that's where our margins and our yield are improved. And so we really want to try to focus on automation. And the good thing is I'm seeing a lot of growers now they don't even ask how to do it manually. They want to know how to automate it right off the bat. And you can bleed these valves so they um, so they work uh, manually. But ultimately, you want to have the the system set up where these components can be automated off a controller, uh, so we can consistently water things. Michael, what's the uh, orange tag on the uh, bottom left valve? You know, kind of on the side there. So um, so. Uh, <laughs> So you can bleed a valve a couple different ways, and we're, we're gonna show that action here in a second. Um, the different aspects of this, uh, the top is the flow control. So that's uh, just like the air relief valve. And this is, a, this is a huge misunderstanding with valves. A lot of people try to turn that, that's how they try to turn their valve off, or they try to control the amount of water moving through the valve. Flow control, the only reason you're gonna use that is if, if there's fluctuations of pressure or water in your system, or if your valve is taking too long to shut down, you're gonna just take a couple cranks on that flow control. And what you're doing is you're lessening the atmospheric pressure in the top of the diaphragm, which we'll show in a second. And by doing that, your valve shuts down faster. Now on these three quarter and one inch valves, it doesn't really, it's not really that big of a deal. It doesn't usually happen, but when you get into inch and a half, two inch valves, these valves will take up to a minute to close down. Well, if you've got another valve in your system turning on, you're depriving it of that water, it's gonna to struggle to open and it could hammer or it could just struggle from one to the next. And so. What you do is you make adjustments on that flow control knob to, to lessen that pressure. And then that way the valve is gonna open and close tightly. Um, that being said, you can bleed a valve a couple different ways. And when I say bleed, you're just manually turning an automated valve on. You can turn that little solenoid there and loosen it because you're just letting air out. Just like you're letting air out of a tire, you're letting air out. By doing that, it's allowing the diaphragm to pop up inside and allow water to pass. Well. We don't like stripping out solenoid threads because if you have water in that valve and you loosen that solenoid and you can't get it back on, that's gonna be a problem. The valve's not gonna shut down. And so 
what we've done is we've put a little um, little bleed bleed you know mechanism on the back side of it, so you can turn that on and off without affecting the threads on the solenoid. That's so cool. I love that uh, feature on that valve because I have uh, snapped a solenoid off a time or two with, uh, without a spare nearby and a, a small project turned into a half day job as a result. Yeah, there's not a lot of threads on there and they're very small. Um, you know, some manufacturers have tried to improve that a little bit, but um, you know, when they're under pressure in the dirt, in the ground, I mean, you know, sometimes the valve lid will lean against them and strip them and then it pops off and that's a nightmare. And, you know, inside, we're typically mounting these valves to the wall for our indoor grows uh, to kind of reduce any water hammer. Um, you know, so it, we're, it's a little more of a controlled environment, but I, 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 there's nothing worse than going out and seeing a grower and loosen the solenoid when there's other options. So uh, I'd much prefer you use the little bleed screw. Yeah, thank you. Um, the one on the bottom right, that's a pressure regulating valve. So our outside cannabis growers and our um, large hemp growers, they're going to use something like that. That's going to help with regulation. That way, when you're moving up, large amount of water that valve is actually going to make him um it's going to make uh, adjustments to your internal diaphragm and the atmospheric pressure we're going to talk about in a second that's going to allow it to close uh and open uh, at a good rate without having to make a bunch of adjustments and that's what those tubings are they're just simple bypasses from the lower to the upper diaphragm um, with a pilot valve on it to control regulation so you can basically set how much pressure you want that valve to see and then depending on you know, it doesn't matter how much water is coming in or how much pressure is coming in. It's going to allow for those fluctuations and it's going to provide exactly the right amount of water you set it for. So a little bit more there, but, um, you know, that's that's the future of valves is we're trying to get rid of the valve filter um, regulator. Uh, you want to get it all into one. And so a valve like that does just that. You still need a filter on it, but it has like a, a little Y filter inside that helps as well. Yeah, no, we had a question come in and it says, uh, you said uh, outdoor cannabis. Is outdoor cannabis really a thing? <clears throat> so outdoor cannabis is a thing if you can do it. I mean, look at uh, Northern California and Humboldt. Uh, you know, it, it, it depends on where you're growing. You know, they grow on the backside of hills or in valleys. You can grow it in hoop houses. Um, it, people are very good at it. Uh, it, 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 there's less, I think there's less controlled environment. So typically they, you, people want to grow it inside. Also, there's a security issue. Um, you know, besides Humboldt, California, uh, if you, you know, there's very few places where you can grow it um, legally outside in large, large swaths. So even the, even the states where it is legal to grow it outside, they're making you grow it a certain distance from highways or from public, you know, schools and uh, airports and stuff like that. They don't want people flying over and seeing it. So it becomes a little harder to find a location to do it. But there are locations around the world where they are growing cannabis outside. Um, I'm not a huge uh, professional one. Or, I mean, a perfectionist when it comes to the plant. I'm way better at watering these plants than I am uh, knowing the species and everything about them. Uh, I, but I do know that the guys that are growing in other, Northern California are typically growing different stuff than what's being grown inside. <clears throat> inside, you're, you're focusing more on high levels of THC or for extract. Um, or for edibles or something like that. The guys in Northern California are typically growing for flour. I know people would argue with me about that, but from what I've seen, that's they're growing big bushes because they want to actually get the flour and sell the flour. All right, great, thank you, interesting. Um, so this is a question I get a lot is, you know, how a valve works, how a globe valve works. Well, uh, the water enter, enters in and just like the flapper in the back of your toilet, it seals back down when the, when the valve closes. And so let me see if I can get this automation going properly. So you can see um, in, on this particular one, this is when the solenoid allows for the system to open. 
um, it's the plunger is going to go up and it's going to allow the, it's going to release the air on the upside of the diaphragm and allow water to pass through it. So by doing that, um, you know, it's, it's a very simple mechanics. There's not much that can fail there. Uh, from a troubleshooting standpoint, what I get from growers all the time is my solenoids failing. Well, more than likely the solenoid is not failing. The solenoid is just a simple copper um, coil and that little silver plunger inside is just, it's an electromagnet. Once you charge that copper coil, it just pulls that electromagnet up and it goes back down because it's spring loaded. And so this little diagram shows exactly how the once that solenoid plunger goes up, it allows the water to push up on the diaphragm and move through the uh, secondary side of the globe valve. And then in this one, it shows how it closes. Once the plunger goes back down, it seals off that little water port, which is this little purple part right here. It seals that little part off and it naturally makes the diaphragm push back down and seal back up. And then that's where our seal is in the bottom. So if you can see these little two light blue areas down here, if you have a valve that's not closing, we call them bleeding valves, it's just bleeding out a little bit of water. Once again, just like that, when the chain gets stuck under your plunger in the back of your toilet, it's the same thing. When debris gets stuck in there, it doesn't allow the diaphragm to seal and the water just bleeds. Tightening the flow control is not gonna do anything. Replacing the solenoid is not gonna do anything. You've gotta take the bonnet off of the valve and clean it out and put it back together. Um, diaphragms take a pretty long time to fail. Um, they're rubber, EPMD, so they don't, they don't fail very often. Um, they have to be in the field a, a pretty long time or be under uh, pretty you know, intense situations before they start warping or literally breaking. Some have broken apart, but typically it's just a clogging issue. And when solenoids fail, uh, you'll hear them buzz because they've either been hit by lightning um, or they're just not getting the right voltage because of bad connections and uh and they're just going to buzz but you can see in that how you know the solenoid has not really much to do with the mechanics of the valve beyond just opening that little port uh, to allow for the water to for the air to pass so can i buy like a diaphragm kit or something uh to, to change that out or you know you said pull it off is there a kit I can buy or do I have to change the whole valve? No, you just replace the diaphragm. I mean, most globe valves, that's the beauty. That's this crossover from landscape to, you know, the cannabis and the hemp side is um, you don't necessarily have to go full full ag on some of this stuff. You can kind of meet in the middle and landscape stuff uh, has been designed and manufactured to be a little bit more simple. Um, so everybody can kind of learn how to work on it from the homeowner to the more complex contractor. And so a diaphragm can be replaced pretty easily. Turn your water off, obviously. And then there's just bonnet screws. The bonnet cap comes off, there's a spring inside. And you just wanna make sure, put that diaphragm back in there, line up the holes properly around your screws. Uh, so you would just buy a replacement diaphragm, even the retail uh, Home Depots and the Lowe's sell replacement diaphragms for the valves that they sell. Um, same with the solenoids, and solenoids can be replaced. Uh, but as I mentioned, the only time I've seen solenoids fail is when there's like a lightning strike in the area or the connections have just been sitting in water for so long that it's corroded the copper uh, aspects inside the, the coil. Great. This one is the, yeah, sorry. This one is the bleed screw. Um, so on this particular one, this valve that is uh, illustrated here has the, the bleed screw on top. You know, as we mentioned before, we have the little red tab, but it's the same principle. Uh, once you, once you bleed that air out, it allows the diaphragm to push up and allow water to pass over this globe wall. Um, and then obviously when you close it, we'll twist the diaphragm shut. Sorry. You'll twist the diaphragm shut, it will push down on the diaphragm and it will seal back up. So it's kind of the same mechanics of when it's getting the automated signal from the solenoid, 
uh, but you're bleeding it manually. And that's why, why not put an automatic valve on your system uh, so you can be bleeding it while you're maybe running your wire and putting a controller on the system. Yeah, what a simple, uh, simple operation, right? The <laughs> most reliable. Yeah, yeah. I mean, why, why mess with it if it's simple? Um, so then once we, now we filtered our water, we've applied um, an, an automatic or a manual valve. So now we're, we're controlling our water. We, when we, we know our quality of water is good and we know where our water is going. We have it automated so it can run on a water window or on a schedule consistently. All these things are gonna play into that canopy growth that we want. Um, we've talked about this in the past. I know right away when I walk into a system and the canopy is all over the place, that we've got some issues with consistency. It's typically because something's being manually done and we wanna to try to eliminate that by you know, adding these components and letting them work together. And that, that being said, now that we've filtered our water and automated it, how are we delivering this water to the plant itself? And there's a few options for that. And uh, um, I'm gonna go over four of them, uh, maybe five. Uh, and you know, these, this is kind of where it's up to the grower to figure out how they want to, you know, what components do they want to use uh, given the resources they have, budget and size of the plant, size of the pot, growing medium, uh, things like that. Uh, these, these are a couple pretty self-explanatory options. We have our ClickTiff pressure compensating emitter. Uh, this is a pretty cool little emitter. They bury them in Fresno and in the Valley. So, you know, if you can bury an emitter and it still keeps working, it must be a pretty good emitter, but they can run sludge through these things. So for my growers, I love giving them a click tiff because in the past where they're getting something maybe from a retail outlet, it's getting clogged all the time. The click tiff is going to self flush the, the debris through it. And it's either going to make its way out of the tube or it's going to make it out of our automatic flush valve that's at the end of the line. And then we've, uh, I've added a couple little illustrations here to show how it would actually distribute the water. Um, you know, if you're in a field, you can put this right off of the supply tubing, but if you're indoors, you really want to make sure you capture every drop. And so this would typically pluck into the supply line and we would have uh, like quarter inch emitter line distributing the water around the base of the growing medium, or we would have it just uh, maybe one or two dripping right into the side of it. Once again, depending on the, the pot size and the, uh, the growing medium. And then the one on the right is the take apart emitter. Um, you know, some guys like to be able to take them apart and flush them out, maybe take that little diaphragm out to get more water out of them. Um, you know, if you, uh, if you are still getting clogging issues or you can't maybe afford a filter in the flushing uh, aspects, then you go with a, a simple take apart emitter. And then that way you can, um, you know, you can flush them out and clean them at each one. But I mean, if you have 60 plants and 120 emitters, you can imagine how time consuming that can be. Um, the next one is actually, let's see if I can do this, these drip stakes. So these drip stakes are very popular with our growers or all growers. The pre-assembled manifolds, this is a, this is like more of an economical version. If you have thousands of plants, it can be very hard to put a pressure compensating manifold, um, you know, on every eight, 10 or 12 plants. And so this is a, this is a more economical version. And it also helps move the water into, you know, our, our coconut wools and, uh, you know, maybe if it's not soil, uh, we want to really move the water down through uh, whatever our growing medium is. Uh, this is a pretty simple option to do that. And you want to make sure you use a little pressure compensated emitter like that click tiff, and then you can run it off, you know, singularly, you can run it off two, or you can run it off four. Um, something to keep in mind there is if you're using a one gallon emitter though, and you break it up four times, now you're only distributing a quarter of a gallon. Um, it's going to take a long time to run. Well, if you've got a lot of plants. You don't want to be running your pump or running your system for days at a time. So we want to kind of meet in the middle of making sure we're getting the plant what it needs and meeting its demand. 
while also fitting into a water window of when we can be running things. That's a really interesting point. I hadn't hadn't thought of that, right? This is uh, some of the value I know in the uh, octobubble you're about to show. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I mean, <clears throat> this the ideal way to do it is is a, a PC manifold like an octobubble. Um, you know, and you can you can get eight eight plants off of this, or at least eight leads. But you could you could come off and then you know split it two different ways, and you know feed sixteen plants. But the the pressure compensating aspect is huge because this what this does is this eliminates any variables in your system that maybe uh, you know you, you just didn't account for. Uh, and now, regardless of how much pressure or how much water we have going into the octobubbler, as long as it's getting twenty to forty pounds of pressure. It's going to make sure that it delivers uh, four, six, 10, 20 gallons, or excuse me, two, six, 10, or 20 gallons per hour. And so at an hourly rate, you could have your system running for a long amount of time. So we want to make sure we're putting down the right amount of water, not necessarily as fast as possible, but you know, we don't want to um, we don't want to be delivering water any longer than we need to and running pumps longer and draining reservoirs. Um, and so ideally you're using a PC manifold like this. And I provided an illustration in the bottom. It shows just what we've talked about, valve, filter, emission device, air relief valve. So, I mean, it's it's that simple. It's those components. And all you're doing is, uh, depending on the scope of your project, you're just adding more of them or less of them. Uh, but it's ultimately all the same components. Yeah, talk about a clean, beautiful setup right there on the bottom. That uh, that looks beautiful. Yeah, and I mean, we've we've seen this. Um, you know, this is this is the ideal the ideal scenario. Um, you know, we have like for the people out there that maybe have tried to troubleshoot this component before, you know, we, we've had people try to take out the little flow inserts inside. Um, these are the little devices that regulate how much water is going out of each path. Um, people have taken them out, but the reason they're taking them out or they're getting clogging is because they're not filtering and flushing properly. So anytime I've been troubleshooting an octobubbler, it's either um, not enough water going into the, the PC manifold to open and close and distribute properly, not enough pressure or too much pressure, or they're getting clogging issues because they're not filtering and flushing. So the way I always explain it is the octobubbler is at the mercy of what you've designed. So it's not, it's not, it's not sitting there at night formulating ways to, uh, to frustrate you. It is simply, uh, it is just reacting to the system variables that exist and that you've provided to it. And so it's up to you to use how it's not working to your advantage from a troubleshooting perspective. And, um, and that's usually how I take it. It's like, look, I know you wish that if I sent you a new octobuller, it was going to solve the problem. But more than likely, it's not the problem. Um, you have some system dynamics that need to be addressed. And, and that's where we go. And uh, I think a lot of growers, they, they learn a lot about their system from you know, a device like that. Treating the symptom, not the, uh, not the problem. Exactly, yeah. <clears throat> So uh, a couple little emitter types, um, you know, some of the outdoor growers or the hoop houses that are using inline emitter line. I wanted to put this a uh, couple of these slides on there, maybe for future reference, um, just to kind of show how the water leaves the tubing path and it goes through, um, you know, what we call a cascading labyrinth, which is what traps our debris um, to make sure that, you know, the, the water little inlet or outlet is not getting clogged. And so what we have is our debris gets trapped against the sides of these little teeth inside and then the next time the system runs it flushes it out so it's self-flushing i mean i can't stress enough the flushing and the filtration of this i think i've made it pretty clear that with the small um, water droplets you've got to make sure you don't have any debris most of these components like inline and mineral line especially on the landscape side are designed to move debris 
in water out of the orifices, not in air. And so if we can relinquish the path of air, just like we do with that automatic combination air relief uh, flush valve, if we can get rid of the air, more often than not, any debris that's in the water will make its way out of the water path. It's not gonna create clogging. Now, if you turn on a zone and there's a bunch of air in there and you have turbulent, um, turbulence with debris, that's where you get the clogging, you get the whistling, and that's why it's easy to eliminate with that, that device. Um, I'm not gonna spend too much time on this for obvious reasons, but this does come into play when people ask me how much, how many emitters, how much, how many uh, octobubblers, um, how, many, how many emission devices can I put on each zone? Uh, this is why it's a little bit more complex of an issue than me just saying eight, <laughs> um, which used to be a, a joke was how many pop-ups can I put on a zone? 15, how do you know that? I don't, that's exactly where I'm going with this. And so this is a good, this is a good slide to outline exactly some of the variables that you wanna look at. We lose a little bit of our water with every foot of pipe we run water through. And we've gotta take that into account when we're zoning our valves or sizing our valves and our zones out. This determines how much water we have and ultimately determines how many emission devices or manifolds we can put on an individual zone. Um, you know, we have great partners at IDC that can do higher in design, uh, but for the smaller hobby gardeners um, and growers, uh, you know, it's great to have this chart handy. So you know that if you're running, you know, um, 10 gallons per minute through a three quarter inch line, uh, you know that you're losing potentially, uh, you know, 10, 10 PSI per 100 feet. So. Uh, it's just, it's a good reference chart that I wanted to put in here for people to, uh, to be able to reference in the future. I like this, Michael. And I think uh, your, your other point here is that it, it's not a guessing game. There is a scientific way to figure this out, right? Yeah. And it's, it's never as simple as just, you know, one or two things. It's a combination of variables, um, that are going to give you your best results. And, you know, once again, uh, some of these components are not, they're relatively inexpensive. We sell Octobubblers for what, eight, eight, nine bucks. Uh, you know, you can always buy one, throw it on your, your system and fill a five gallon bucket up. You know, it's that simple. Like, are you able to fill a five gallon bucket up within, a, within the right amount of time? Um, you know, things like that. I always err on the side of testing it, which is why I have no problem sending samples out to our potential growers. Figure it out. Let me know your system dynamics and then let's go from there. So you're not buying a lot and then you, uh, you, know, you feel mistreated. And then lastly, I wanted to wrap up with kind of what I've been trying to reiterate this whole time is how these components work together and um, how we work from the beginning of our system out to the end. Um, and in this particular case, I put a couple examples here up on the top right. Um, you know, those are some dosatron injection um, manifolds where they're pulling from these 50 gallon buckets and they're introducing the nutrients into the irrigation system. Uh, there is an ET water controller off to the left that's controlling the water window and the water scheduling. Um, and then we have ball valves to shut off individual zones. I also think some of those ball valves up here are to push O2 through the lines to flush them. So there's a couple different paths here, um, but ultimately they're for maintenance. And then in each individual room, we're gonna have an automated zone valve with a filter, with our emission device and with our little flush component at the end. And so this kind of shows from A to Z how these components go in order. Um, so it's something to think about when you're specifying or when you're asking us or myself questions about your system, you're not saying, you know, uh, I need a pump, I need this, I need this, I need this, I need this. Uh, you know exactly what resources to pull from, uh, given the, uh, this, you know, what part of the system you're looking at. 
Yes, so the ET water controller that you uh, pointed out here. Yeah, thank you. Um, this allows uh, somebody to run irrigation, whether they're in the building or not, right? They can do it anywhere there. Is that correct? Yeah, the big one, I mean, you know, there's a lot of nervousness to running uh, huge amounts of water indoors when you're not there. And this, this allows you to monitor the system when you're not there. And so while you may be able to go get, you know, an over-the-counter controller from a, from a local retailer, uh, that's great if you're standing over it the whole time. But if you're standing over it the whole time, you're just wasting money. That's a waste of labor. So the idea is that all of this stuff is so automated and so dialed in that you can run it when you're not there. That way, when you are there during the day or your, your team's there, you guys are actually, you know, working on the plants themselves. Um, you're not working on the irrigation. This irrigation, all of these components are available at a great price to be able to, to, to monitor and distribute water uh, when you're not there. That's the idea. That's what we do in the ag side. That's what we do in the landscape. We run our sprinklers at night. The ag guys are running most of their sprinklers at night as well. So, you know, it's the same thing here, except we're indoors, which can create a little bit of nervousness, rightfully so, something falls, you know, but um, to your point, I'd feel much comfortable if I got a, a ping on my phone that said, hey, uh, we've got a leak, we're shutting down, we're moving on to the next zone. That way I know tomorrow what I'm going into and I know that I'm not, uh, you know, compromising the, uh, the safety of, of the facility. Well, that's awesome. I, I hear you correctly. It'll actually shut the system down if there's a leak, so... Yeah, shuts it down, maybe tests it one more time and then moves on. And so what it does is, you know, if we're dealing with small amounts of water, we're going to set uh, basically um, these, these parameters where we say, look, this is our low flow. This is our high flow. If you see anything lower, anything higher, shut down and move on um, and give me an alert. And it's going to give you an alert and you're going to know where to focus your time on from a troubleshooting standpoint the next time you're at the facility. That's awesome because I think about all the lights and electric in there from a safety issue and an expense issue if it causes an additional problem. Man, I, I want to avoid that. It, you know, and it also the flow, the flow component of it also allows you to uh, monitor nutrients as well. Um, you know, you see those big 50 gallon buckets, they're not cheap and nothing's worse than going in the next day in a 50 gallon bucket that should still be full is empty. So uh, it allows you to, to monitor your nutrients, which is one of the more expensive parts of growing long-term. You know, there's an initial investment in obviously these components, uh, but, you know, this stuff's going to work for a while and you're going to pull, if you're pulling a yield every 65, 70 days, you know, you're going to be using these things for two or three years. Uh, but when it comes to nutrients, you're going through them very quickly. And there's a real easy way to monitor whether or not you're using them properly. And that's with, you know, a flow sensor and the flow parameters behind a smart controller. So that was all I had for today, Richard. I don't know if there's any follow-up questions or if you had any follow-up questions to uh, well, I was, Yeah, I just want to say thank you. That was a ton of great information today. <laughs> that was a lot. With us. And, you know, it's uh, it's basic components to a system, but it's, uh, it's a bit complicated. But uh, you did it in a way that uh, made it a lot more simple for all of us to uh, hear and learn about. And I know we're all going to approach our irrigation systems going forward uh, differently. So uh, yeah, I think the one thing I do want to add is, um, you know, when it comes to troubleshooting or the specification and design side, photos always speak volumes. Uh, I think the days of kind of trying to, to hide your grower over with most of what we're dealing with is, um, if not all, is the legal side of it. You know, never be afraid to send us photos. You have my email, you have my contact info here. You'll see on our Jane's USA Instagram that we post, um, you know, plenty of cannabis and hemp systems. Uh, but I think the big one is I always tell people, look, if you've got a problem with your system, take photos of it and send it to me. I'm not going to knock on your door tomorrow and ask what you're doing. I just need to know how your components are either working or not working properly together. 
or you know what your what your end goal is. And the easiest way to do that is to provide a visual. And so you can always email me a, a photo of what you're working on, and I have no problem coming back to you and uh, helping with it. Yeah, that, that's really generous, right? To uh, to offer that. I know we all appreciate that. And let me tell you, if you're out there watching, you should take him up on this because uh, uh, Michael's very good at this troubleshooting and uh, and helping people out. It's a uh, real passion of his, and I know you'll get the right help. And speaking of help, I want to remind you that we have all of our webinar series on our website. You just go to janesusa.com forward slash trainings, and you'll see all of them there, uh, as well as anywhere you listen to your favorite podcast. We're there as well. We, we uh, strip out the audio and put it into a podcast so you can listen and learn while you're working. When I see so many people doing this, it uh, it gives me a lot of hope for the future of irrigation, conservation, and sustainability to know people are educating every day to uh, be better at water management. And that, that's great to hear. So, Michael, again, thank you. Thanks to everybody who joined us today. And um, we'll, be, uh, uh, we'll be back here on Friday. And we're going to be talking a little bit about uh, video again and how you can put marketing programs together through video uh, to improve the brand uh, that you're working for. This will be uh, Chris Sabarisi from Corona Tools uh, does a great job with these videos and he'll be on talking about that. So anyway, thanks everybody. Hope you have a great rest of the day and uh, we'll see you guys back here on Friday. Thank you. Thank you.